trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Like you, I am painfully aware of what is happening to our world. Yep, I see the chaos. I see the instability. I see the breakdown of institutions that we have, uh, well, grown up relying on and trusting. Nope, I'm not oblivious to it, but I, I will say this. I feel encouraged as I see all of the, the challenges in front of us. I feel the weight of those challenges. Don't Don't get me wrong, but... I also have this very strong sense that you and I were born for this time. And that means that uh, whether times are great or whether times are difficult, uh, we have a very important thing to do. And I'm here to uh, provide encouragement, hopefully timely, credible information that will help you better see the world as well as understand what you can do to improve it wherever you happen to be standing. I know, lofty goal, but that's the purpose of the Brian Hyde Show. And I want to mention my sponsors who make this possible. They include Ironsight Brewing Company. That's ironsightbc.com. That's a subscription coffee service. If you are a person who needs that kick in the seat of the pants to get you going in the morning, you should uh, click on the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com and see for yourself. Look, they, they say from the roaster to your cup in less than 72 hours you got a lot of choices. they got some cool swag. Again, that's Ironsight Brewing Company. Thanks to QuiltAndSew.com as well, TMCPNation.com, and LifesavingFood.com. I want to come back for a moment to uh, the concept of standing up for liberty. I'm assuming that you're probably someone who is serious about defending freedom and, and defending liberty. And that's why it always makes me happy when I hear people talk about you know, the most important thing you can do or the most subversive or the most revolutionary thing, if, if you're more, you know, inclined towards, that's me, it's to improve yourself, to become the best possible version of yourself. That's the way to create and wield your influence. In fact, I want to share with you just real briefly, just a, a quick definition of what influence actually is. I came across this quote yesterday and it was so good. I actually shared it with a friend. Tyler, who was, was like, hey, you know, I'm, you're, you're being way, way too generous. But this is a quote from a pastor by the name of Albert Barnes. Now, he lived back in the 1800s, but he said, influence is that in a man's known talents, learning, character, experience, and position on which a presumption is based that what he holds is true, that what he proposes is wise. Now, granted, he's saying he, but he probably, I'm sure he means women as well. But what is it about you and your talents, your learning, your character, your experience, your position that would cause the people around you to look at you and, and think, well, you know what this person holds is true? Or what this person is proposing is wise. That's why you want to become the best version of yourself. So I'm going to, I'm going to share with you some excerpts from an article by Dan Sanchez who is from the Foundation for Economic uh, Education. By the way, Dan is fighting an incredibly courageous battle against cancer. 
and yet he continues to to do his incredible writing as he always has. I know he's had to, he's had some different you know things to work around, treatment and so forth. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's not an easy thing for him. I guess my point is. Dan isn't a guy who's just sitting here pulling words out of thin air and, oh, yeah, well, this is what I think sounds like like it would be feasible. This is a guy who is walking the walk. In fact, he's walking a very difficult path right now, but still just sharp as a tack when it comes to uh, his insights. And so when he's talking about self-improvement being inherently pro-liberty, he's specifically talking about the book Atomic Habits, an easy proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. This is by James Clear. Apparently, this was the number one best-selling book in the world last week. And Dan says, just to be clear, extra clear, it wasn't just the top book in its category. That was the top book, period. And that's an especially remarkable feat, as overall bestseller lists are typically dominated by works of fiction. So it's really something for a nonfiction book to be outselling even the hottest romance novels. And that's no flash in the pan either. Apparently, this title's been topping the charts since its release half a decade ago. Since then, it's been on Publishers Weekly's top 10 overall list for 194 weeks. As of mid-2023, 15 million copies had been purchased. More than 15 million. Now, that kind of staying power and volume indicates not just effective marketing but also satisfied readers and enthusiastic word of mouth. And for a self-improvement book, he says it signifies that its advice must be working for people. And Dan says, and it's certainly been working for him. He says the atomic habits phenomenon is an encouraging one, but in recent years we've seen troubling signs of cultural decay. Yet at the same time, we're also seeing a counter trend of millions seeking to build better versions of themselves and finding an effective guidebook for doing so. And Dan rightly points out that is cause for hope. So what's the big deal? How is a bunch of people improving their habits supposed to reverse cultural decay? Dan says a conservative critic might argue that a moral degenerate with a fine-tuned morning routine is still a moral degenerate. In fact, better habits might only empower such reprobates to be more effective in disseminating their perverse values. He says the last thing we need is Netflix scriptwriters improving their daily creative process and cranking out more youth-corrupting poison. Cultural decay, our critic might say, can only be combated in a culture war with the champions of the good battling the forces of evil in order to reform the values of others, not people in general reforming themselves. You see the difference? Now, a libertarian doubter might add the root cause of our cultural decay, decay rather, is big government is strangling individual liberty and perverting incentives. You can't improve, self-improve your way out of that. But a socialist on a better diet will be around longer just to clamor for more tyranny. Civilizational decline, our doubter may insist, can only be reversed through a war of ideas, through champions of truth, skewering collectivist fallacies in order to reform the thinking of others. Again, not people in general reforming themselves. So both the conservative and the libertarian might agree that only a strategic focus on political change, getting the right people in office and the right laws in the books, will save us. Now, one libertarian who saw things differently was Leonard E. Reed. He was the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education. In his book, Elements of Libertarian Leadership, This is what Reed wrote, quote, All individuals are faced with the problem of whom to improve, themselves or others. 
Their aim, it seems to me, should be to affect their own unfolding, the upgrading of their own consciousness. In short, self-perfection. Those who don't even try or when trying find self-perfection too difficult usually seek to expend their energy on others. Their energy has to find some target. Those who succeed in directing their energy inward, particularly if they be blessed with great energy, like Goethe, for instance, become moral leaders. Those who fail to direct their energy inward and let it manifest itself externally, particularly if they be of great energy, like Napoleon, for instance, become immoral leaders. Those who refuse to rule themselves are usually bent on ruling others. Those who can rule themselves usually have no interest in ruling others. End quote. Boy, that last line, that's a doozy. People capable of ruling themselves, people who prefer to rule themselves, aren't the ones running around trying to uh, boss everybody else around and tell them what to do and use the power of the state to control them. That's the kind of person you and I need to be. And Dan says, this is why the atomic habits phenomenon is such a good sign. The book's millions of readers are seeking self-improvement, thus directing their energy inward. And the more they do that, the less they'll expend their energy on others or trying to improve others by meddling with their values through corrupting indoctrination or meddling with their behaviors through shackling legislation. So they'll not only meddle less, but they'll actually model more. That's because their self-improvement efforts can inspire those in their circle of influence to self-improve in emulation. And at whatever scale of influence they have, self-improvers tend to become leaders who lead by example rather than meddlesome tyrants, many Goethe's, Goethe's rather instead of many Napoleons. Now Dan says this is not to say conservatives and libertarians cannot influence the moral values and political ideas of others, but... He says, as Reed taught, good influence cannot be achieved through meddlesome campaigns of counter-indoctrination. In other words, culture wars and wars of ideas. He says, leadership in this arena is also a matter of self-improvement as opposed to other improvement of modeling over meddling. The more we concentrate on improving our own understanding, expression, and embodiment of good values and ideas, the more that others will gravitate toward our moral thought and leadership. You can see what he's saying here, right? Liberty is an inherently self or is inherently pro-virtue and pro-liberty kind of thing. Self-improvement is pro-virtue and pro-liberty. And what our world needs is not a culture war or war of ideas. Dan Sanchez says what the world needs is for each and all to wage and win the war within. Pretty solid stuff. Great way to get your day started. I'll have a link for you in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Oh my goodness, this is one of those days where I'm actually finding myself wondering, am I going to be able to keep my voice to the end of the episode? I guess we'll find out. So, true confession, I'm uh, I'm helping with a community theater production of School of Rock, and uh, no, no, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not featured prominently in the show. I'm doing mostly backstage stuff, but uh, let's just say, when it comes to doing a musical show, there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, there's probably 
50 some people in the cast and it's uh, it's really it's a very fast-paced fun show but everybody is burning the candle at both ends and i've never seen more sick people showing up to rehearsal last night and you know you may say well that's not very nice to bring in their germs but this is the crunch stage this is the point where you know people are are very serious about getting this show right we open i think two weeks from two weeks from tomorrow Oh my goodness, I think that's right. Anyway, so lots of germs going around, lots of people, you know, barely hanging on to their voices and whatnot. And it's very possible I'm going to end up sharing the crud just like them. But you know what? It's togetherness. So it's not like I really even mind all that much. All right, that said, let's take a moment here to talk about uh, the ongoing foreign aid being directed to Ukraine. I know Mitt Romney was really pushing hard yesterday about, oh, we've got to make sure we send this funding to Ukraine. And I think actually, I, I, I'll i be honest, I haven't seen the, the latest news headlines, so I've, I've got to check and see. I think they may have passed an aid package for Ukraine, for Taiwan, possibly for Israel as well. The border? Well, that's a problem we'll have to deal with another time. But Ukraine, well, they're, they're in great danger. And, and, I'll just tell you right up front, I don't believe the U.S. should have been involved in Ukraine. No, I'm not talking since February of 2022. I mean, we should not have been involved in Ukraine going clear back to, uh, well, I'll even go back to 2014 and maybe even before that. 2014, the Orange Revolution, the Maidan Revolution that that uh, took one president out and put a pro, uh, pro-U.S. pro puppet in followed by Zelensky I know that uh, it's it's a very unpopular thing to to suggest that well you know anything other than uh, Ukraine just went or uh, Russia just went crazy and decided to invade their neighbor one day that seems to be the narrative that we're supposed to believe oh that Putin's such a tyrant and he you know he's the one who came up with this idea just to to grab Ukraine and then grab whatever countries he can I don't believe that for a second Now, what I do believe is NATO, despite assurances following the fall of the Iron Curtain, has continued to expand, expand, expand. And Russia, which was part of the Warsaw Pact, now finds itself with uh, the organization that was created to defeat the Warsaw Pact. Um, You know, the Warsaw Pact went away, but NATO didn't. And instead has expanded itself right up to Russia's doorstep and... uh, yeah, unpopular as it may be, they have good reason to be very wary about, for instance, American nukes just across the border. Oh, and there's also the possibility of those uh, American-run bio labs in Ukraine. I know we're not supposed to talk about that, but bottom line, all this foreign aid that's going to Ukraine has a very curious smell to it. It just doesn't pass the sniff test. It just seems like... It's, it's a great way to launder billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions at this point, without raising too much suspicion. And, of course, with a little bit of sympathy. Well, look at the poor Ukrainians and Russia being so mean and, you know, look at the, the fighting and the suffering. Hey, there's no doubt the fighting and suffering is real. But I think I agree with Jordan Schachtel, who says this, this ongoing foreign aid that is being directed to Ukraine, <clears throat> the foreign aid bills, It's just another stimulus package. 
funded by the taxpayers, and it's specifically for the parasites of the D.C. Beltway. Jordan Schachtel says the United States Congress has already allocated hundreds of billions of dollars to the losing war effort in Ukraine. And he says the vast majority of the money, other than the, the, the dollars that serve to bribe Ukrainian officials and keep them on side with the West, is spent in the United States. Did you catch that? The vast majority of the money is being spent in the U.S. Now, at first glance, that might seem like a good thing. And he says it might even be preferable to, to sending that military foreign aid money overseas to some sketchy Ukrainian tank commander with uh, historically controversial tattoos named Anatoly. <laughs> American officials and members of Congress who support the current conflict thing continue to drive home the idea that this way of doing a foreign aid is as American as apple pie. But Jordan Schachtel says, surely in the aftermath of the multi-trillion dollar boondoggles in Iraq and Afghanistan, they hope the marketing sticks. Maybe you saw the president's news conference on Tuesday. The president declaring it spends the money right here in the United States of America. Yeah, the president actually said that. By the way, he added about three times, history is watching. History is watching. Lots of pressure on those senators. So now it's worth breaking down why this noxious status quo is so damaging to the fiscal and societal health of the United States. But Jordan Schachtel says for that, we have to go to the first principles of economics. First and foremost, government does not create jobs. Let me repeat, the government does not and cannot create jobs. This is especially true for the no-bid Beltway defense behemoths, which have become increasingly centralized with increasingly bloated budgets and profit margins over time. So let's consider this $95 billion Ukraine bill that just passed the Senate and is being debated before the House. If that bill passes and it's signed into law, they will proceed to print $95 billion and then distribute the money to an increasingly centralized list of Beltway-based megacorporations, including Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and the gang. So despite allocating $820 billion annually to the Defense Department, the government could once more not find the necessary funds to support Ukraine. So surprise, they need $95 billion more dollars, $60 billion allocated for Ukraine on top of the hundreds of billions already dumped into the Slava slush fund. Now, given that the U.S. is running a $1.7 trillion annual deficit, that means all $95 billion will be added to the $34.23 trillion in debt currently on the books. Are you keeping up? Moreover, Jordan says, by printing $95 billion, the government will therefore debase the value of all of our dollars and that will result in further inflation. In short, everybody but the defense, the Beltway defense industrial crowd gets screwed. No real value is created and fiscal harm is imposed on the rest of the country. And through these top-down anti-market measures... He says Congress siphons off precious resources from the American economy and then uses them to make bombs and weapons for Anatoly's journey into the meat grinder. Now, Jordan Schachtel says a reasonable amount of defense spending is indeed necessary to defend the country. He says, surely it's a lot less than $820 billion a year. But none of these expenditures have anything to do with protecting America's security. 
In fact, he says these kinds of foreign aid bills are nothing more than stimulus checks for the Beltway ruling class. I'm going to put it another slightly less classy way. This is what it looks like when your own country's officials are looting the Treasury as they're preparing to, you know, make their exit after running this thing into the ground. But first, they're going to loot the Treasury. Pretty crazy stuff. I know, wouldn't it be great if we actually had some say in the matter? Well, we do. That's why we got to vote in the right people at the right time. And Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that's maybe not working quite so well. But I do agree with Jordan Schachtel. This is... This is the extractive industries. No, not the oil and gas industries, but the government extracting money from your wallet to send to its politically corrected, connected cronies and partners in crime. And I'm using that term with much more precision <laughs> and a lot less flippance than, uh, than you might think. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I was just uh, recounting my, my podcast numbers, such as I understand them, because I, I really don't, don't track this on a regular basis. But a friend was asking, so what, what, kind of, what kind of podcast action are you getting? And as near as I can tell, my audience is smaller now than it was this time last year. And, uh, and that's, I don't know whether to be encouraged or discouraged. Because on the one hand, I feel like, you know, this, this is a necessary thing that I'm doing. But I also understand this is not a message that's for everybody. As in, not everybody's ready for this kind of message. Not everybody's looking for the, the particular kind of encouragement that I'm trying to offer. And, of course, sometimes I just flat out don't succeed as far as, you know, not, uh, not perpetuating further gloom and doom. But I do appreciate you, whoever you are, for taking the time to listen to this program to consider the thoughts expressed therein and to, uh, you know, to go and do your own homework. It's the whole reason I do the whole show notes in the first place is to make sure you have access to the various sources that, that I'm accessing. I like to think of them as resources resources for wrong thinkers. But uh, my, my goal here is not so much I want to change everybody's mind as much as I just want to encourage you to stand up and be counted. And I know that's a hard thing to ask, first of all, when it feels like there's risk. But secondly, it's a hard thing to ask when there are still plenty of things to watch on television, plenty of comfortable places to sit, plenty of things we could be doing that keep us occupied. I mean, we all have, uh, you know, a finite amount of time and a lot of things to juggle. So I understand if you're new to this, please don't feel overwhelmed. And if you're an old, old seasoned hand, our numbers may be few, but, but here's the thing. With, with moral clarity and especially with true principles, and I'm talking the principles and practices of liberty specifically, you don't need 50% plus one. You don't need a clear majority of people, at least two-thirds, maybe more. What you need is a very small, determined minority who is immovable in their principles. And from there, it will gradually spread and move across society. 
By the way, Malcolm Gladwell had a really great book on this called The Tipping Point, something that, that may be worth checking out. So uh, mainstream media in America, I think, uh, to put it mildly, has reacted poorly to Tucker Carlson's interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And I like uh, I, I wanted to get Ron Paul's take on this. And so his weekly column does not disappoint. Ron comes right out and just says, hey, Tucker slayed the mainstream media dragon. Here's how Ron Paul's Ron Paul puts it. He says there has been much written and said about Tucker Carlson's interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin last week. As of this writing, the video on Twitter has been viewed nearly 20 or I'm sorry, 200 million times making it likely the most viewed news event in history. By the way, just to, I, I believe just as a matter of clarification, I think the first 100 million views took place within the first 24 hours of that video being released. That's a two-hour video. Pretty impressive. Now, Ron Paul says many millions of viewers who may not have had access to the other side of the story were informed that the Russia-Ukraine military conflict did not begin in 2022, as mainstream media continuously reports, but in fact began eight years earlier with a U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine. Now, the U.S. media does not report this because they don't want Americans to begin questioning our interventionist foreign policy. And they don't want Americans to see that our government meddling in the affairs of other nations, whether by color revolution, sanctions, or bombs, has real and deadly consequences to those on the receiving end of our foreign policy. Now, Ron Paul says, to me, however, perhaps the most interesting aspect of the Tucker Carlson interview with Putin was the mainstream U.S. mainstream media reaction. As Putin himself said during the interview, in the world of propaganda, it's very difficult to defeat the United States. Yeah, he did actually say that. Even a casual look at the U.S. mainstream media's reporting before and after the interview would show how correct he is about that. Ron Paul says in the days and weeks before the interview, the media, the U.S. media, again, was filled with stories about how horrible it was that Tucker Carlson was interviewing the Russian president. There was danger, they said, that Putin might spread disinformation. Are you seeing the pattern here? Now, Ron Paul says that Putin might say something to put his country in a better light was, they were saying, reason enough not to interview him. Well, with that logic, why have journalism at all? Everybody interviewed by journalists, certainly every world leader, will attempt to paint a rosy picture. Now, the job of a journalist in a free society should be to do the reporting and let the people decide. But Ron Paul says somehow that's been lost. These days, the mainstream media tells you what to think, and you better not dispute it, or you'll be canceled. So what the U.S. mainstream media was really worried about was that the other side of the story might start to ring true with the public. So they attacked the messenger. The CNN reporting on Tucker's interview pretty much sums up the reaction across the board of the U.S. mainstream media. Their headline read, Tucker Carlson is in Russia to interview Putin. He's already doing the bidding of the Kremlin. Nice spin there, guys. By merely doing what used to be called journalism, says Ron Paul, interviewing and reporting on people and events, whether good or bad. One is doing the bidding of the subject of the interview or report. Really? He says, no wonder fellow journalist Julian Assange has been locked away in a gulag for so many years. He dared to assume that in a free society, being a journalist means reporting the good, the bad, and the ugly, even if it puts those in power in a bad light. So Ron Paul says, in the end, 
the massive success of the Tucker Carlson interview with Vladimir Putin demonstrates once and for all that the American people are sick to death of their mainstream media propagandists and liars. They're not looking for government narratives, but for truth. And that's the really good news about this interview. I know it's going to be a big surprise. I have to agree with Ron Paul, though. And even if even if Putin had gotten up there and thumped his chest and stuck his chin out and, you know, done his best impression of Mussolini or, you know, whomever, whatever bad guy leader you want to refer to. It wouldn't change the fact that it's probably worthwhile to hear what he has to say. If only for for using your own powers of observations and not being a slave to people who are telling you, hey, hey, here's what to think by throwing lots of scary labels at you in hopes that you'll focus more on the label than on what you are hearing or reading for yourself. I know, kind of a weird concept, but I'm happy to see this pushback on mainstream media. The angrier they get, the more frustrated they are that Tucker would dare you know, talk to this this president. That's uh, that's a actually actually that's a big plus. And I'm starting to see more and more grassroots journalism, and it's funny because you know the 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 actual journalist class really boy they get their noses so bent out of shape when that happens when mere citizens step up and and start reporting things that don't fit the narrative. That, that caused the spin meisters and the narrative managers to have to work overtime to counter the misinformation. Ooh, they don't like that. It makes me think back to the Bundy trial back in uh, 2017, late 2017 and um, early 2018. Now, I was there as a friend of the Bundy family. I was there to help them get their, their word out via social media, which means I was reporting on what was happening in the courtroom along with a number of other grassroots People Notice I'm not calling myself a journalist, but I just was, was there as a, a witness. Here's what happened. Here's what it, what it portends. And it was so funny to watch the, the press corps in that trial. Oh, they would get their noses so out of joint that, you know, we would, we would go on social media and report something and being, you know, having that access to the family. Sometimes we were privy to news before these credible news sources were. And I'll never forget the day that the judge dismissed all the, the, she dismissed the superseding indictment with prejudice. And I knew the courtroom was going to be full that day. So I had my editor at, uh, at the time at St. George News um, send me over a press pass, made sure that I had a good seat right there on the press bench in the courtroom with the rest of those uh, journalists. Oh, they were upset. In fact, within a couple of minutes of sitting down, I had a U.S. Marshal over there asking, can I see your credentials, please? which I was more than happy to show him. And then, then I saw the noses really out of joint. How dare you sit with us as if you were some kind of journalist? <laughs> I don't know. I still think, I still think that one of the craziest memories of that whole ordeal was uh, the courtroom proceedings wrapping up one day. And uh, it's a seven-story court. It's a seventh-floor courtroom. So I hopped on the elevator to catch a ride down at the end of the day's events. I stepped into an elevator, though, with about a half dozen of these journalists that were from, you know, various newspapers and organizations, particularly environmentalist groups. Oh, and the Southern Poverty Law Center. I step into the elevators. This merry little conversation is taking place, and it just goes dead silent. And it stayed dead silent for seven floors 
Not a peep. It could have been uncomfortable, but I actually thought it was more funny. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You ready for a little bit of good news in this final segment? Okay, because I've got a couple of doozy articles to share with you. I'm going to start with one that uh, kind of took me by surprise. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. Kurt Malberg is the author, and it talks about what unites Americans in 2024. Apparently, Pew Research Center has uh, reported on how Americans view major institutions, and this offers some pretty interesting insights into where we agree as well as where the biggest divides are. So the title of this survey was From Businesses to Banks to Colleges and Churches, Americans' Views of U.S. Institutions. And this would incorporate the views of roughly 5,000 American adults as expressed in a survey taken in mid-January. So Americans reserve their highest praise for small businesses, with national sentiment towards mom-and-pop stores rising from 80% in October of 2022 to 86% at the beginning of this year. Both Democrats and Republicans, 88% for the Democrats, 87% for the Republicans, are agreed in this assessment. Now, Kurt Malberg says views of the military likewise remain relatively high and nonpartisan, with 64% of Republicans and 60% of Democrats expressing a healthy regard for men and women in uniform. Only 36% of Americans say the effect of the military is negative, with those under the age of 30 more likely to say so. So Americans are similarly, similarly agreed, albeit negatively, in their views on large corporations. Interestingly enough, only 32% of Republicans and just 26% of Democrats say big business plays a positive role in American society. By the way, just as an aside, I, I would have understood, you know, well, you know, the big business, that's always been the enemy and whatnot. And, and I, I've always been against that kind of talk, or at least for the most part, I've been against it because... I think the free market is the way to go, but with capital uh, or with crony capitalism and with, with so many large industries, writing legislation, buying influence, lobbying, you know, to, to help uh, steer government the direction that's most favorable to, to that particular industry or that particular company. Yeah, I'm not so sure that uh, I can be as supportive as before. You know, Democrats, uh, Kurt points out, have been much more critical of Wall Street. Flagging support, though, for corporate America among Republicans is more recent. It's actually a surprising development. 32% of Republicans saying big business plays a positive role in American society. That's down from 54% in 2019. Gee, I wonder what we learned since 2019 that would cause that kind of a drop. I mean, that's, that's significant. Now, Pew did not probe the why behind the what. But Kurt Malberg says, we might hazard a guess that big business is now suspect among conservative Americans due to its embrace of ESG, meaning environmental, social, and corporate governance, and DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, when it comes to banks, an identical 38% of Republicans and Democrats take a positive view. Once again, while Republicans were the traditional fan club of big finance, it appears that the corporate wokeness has turned that relationship icy, too. 
So just for context, 63% of Republicans expressed support for banks as recently as 2019. Democrats' views on banks really hardly changed during that period. Now, there's also a wide partisan divide that can be seen in American society on K-12 public schools, colleges, and universities. Around three-quarters of Democrats view these institutions positively, while only about 30% of Republicans say the same. The divide is almost as wide on K-12 schools. Put another way, Democrats are approximately twice as likely as Republicans to view schools and colleges positively. Why do you suppose that is? Could it be because they have successfully captured those institutions? Just asking. Now, there are also a few takeaways from this Pew study, according to Kurt Malberg. He says, first, though Americans have their own reasons why their views on banks and uh, on banks and big business, Main Street and the military, they, uh, they are all strikingly similar. Maybe this country isn't so divided after all. Second, he points out corporate wokeness like ESG and DEI has not made Wall Street or big finance noticeably more palatable to Democrats. But it does appear to have soured Republicans' views of these important institutions. So Kurt Malberg says now would be a good time for the corporate and finance sectors to cut their ties with toxic stakeholder capitalism and get back to business. Third, he says more research is needed to understand changing views on the church. Are Americans appreciative of organized religion because of its defiance of petty COVID diktats or its embrace of the rainbow religion? Are Republicans just diehard traditionalists or are there signs of spiritual revival in conservative America? Kurt says, finally, if educational institutions want to attract and serve all Americans regardless of background, big reforms are needed, whether in terms of the curriculum being offered, the staff being hired, or the culture being fostered on campus. So the election year ahead surely promises plenty of drama and division, but he says it's clear that Americans are united in their skepticism of several big institutions and their support for the local community. So perhaps it's time to find whatever common ground unites people. Perhaps it's time to repair the West and its culture. Again, kind of an interesting snapshot and something that I thought was worth sharing with you. There is a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Okay, the article of the day, this is one I'm sharing with you. I hesitated to share this just because Tim Denning is a remarkable thinker, but he's also, he's one of those guys who is a, uh, he's an online marketer and coach. And you may think, oh, he's one of those get rich quick online kind of people, but um, the guy's very successful. He makes a ton of sense. I guess I'm sharing this with you because sometimes the difference between failure and success depends on our perspective. So I have linked to an article from Tim Denning, 13 remarkable visualizations that will rewire your brain, guaranteed. And I mean, there's, there's a number of these that uh, he goes into detail on each one of them. I'll just give you a quick, uh, quick example here. Uh, you're supposed to be fearful when you make a growth decision. Tim says, my goal in life is to make people think. If I can go beyond that and make people change, well, I'm ecstatic. But he says, the biggest roadblock I have to this goal is when I ask people to change, they feel fear. Fear holds them back and it becomes an excuse to stop. So he has this graphic which shows, you know, I want to do this. And the flow chart is, okay, do it. Or, but I'm scared. And below that, the, the response is, then do it scared. Powerful stuff. 
He talks about the hidden skill that most people don't possess. I'm going to let you figure out what that one is. He talks about how rich people are freaking idiots. But he's talking about uh, rich people trash that you find in social media. Rich people sell us the dream, he says, that money solves everything. But when all you do is focus on money, you actually stuff up all the other areas of life. He says it turns you into an accidental Elon Musk. Lots of money, but a zero out of ten in all areas of life, which leads to divorce. So he defines wealth much differently than just having money. Wealth includes your money, your experiences, your friendships, your family, your knowledge. By the way, family is, is actually gets, gets the lion's share of that attention. He talks about the work-life balance and self-care crowd, the huge mistake that they've made. Shortcuts are a dead end that hold us back. Uh, the different zones of life, starting with the comfort zone, moving through the fear zone, the learning zone, the growth zone. These are really great illustrations, by the way. Um, he talks about a four-hour workday, but it's with focused work. Not just, uh, you know, four hours of going through the motions. And this is interesting, too. He says, the atomic habits view of the world will ruin your life. Now, he says, I love James Clear. I would have his babies. His atomic habits book is awesome. It's all about consistency. But he also points up that points out that there will be off days. This is really powerful. So, what you need to do is show up regardless of how you're feeling. Whether you think you're going to perform at 100% or not, show up. I think I'm going to skip ahead here. There's a couple other ones here that, uh, that I thought were just really remarkable. This is a good one. Writing isn't what you think it is. And it's, it's brilliant because it shows the power of <clears throat> making sense in your head is hard, right? Those thoughts just bounce around. But when you write them down, you organize them, you put them into a clear black and white tangible form. In fact, he says everyone should write online daily to, to develop the, the habit and experience the magic. Writing helps you think clearly. It's a way to validate ideas. When you write, you become a better speaker. Your beliefs become clearer. The world makes more sense. And he says there's nothing sexier than a clear thinker who knows what they want and gets to the point. And the point is, Writing enables that superpower. Look, I'm talking as, as one who used to hate writing, but now I love it because it does make more sense when you write it down. This is The Brian Hyde Show.